This is Joanna Cassidy, and you're listening to While You Were Streaming. I'm right on top of that, Brian. Can I get you anything, Mr. Trainer? Coffee, tea, me? I'm right on top of that, Rose. The defense is wrong. How come you may say something? Sandwich! You only remember that my skirt accidentally twirled up! And you weren't wearing any underwear. Well... Yes, hello, 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 and here we go. Welcome to the first full-length episode of While You Were Streaming, the movie podcast breaking down my favorite films from the 80s, 90s, and the aughts, aka the films I saw at the mall. That's right, kiddos, we're going back to the formative films of my youth and offering a sincere plea to Gen Z why these films are truly worthy to stream. My name's Brian Reese, and I'm so excited to deep dive into our featured presentation today, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Now today's launch date, June 7th, is no happy accident. I've had this circled on my calendar for months, and without a true hard deadline, this podcast would have never launched. But I had a goal in mind, June 7th, 1991, exactly 30 years ago today, Don't Tell Mom premiered in theaters. This hideously titled, auspicious little movie dropped number five at the box office, below Soap Dish, below Backdraft, well below City Slickers. And even though it didn't make a giant impact on the world, for this 10-year-old little gay boy in Florida skipping out of that movie on a high, it meant everything. Looking back, you have to give full credit, bow down to these actors who came in and elevated some truly sophomoric slapstick material and brought a sweetness, a lightness, a deftness, and just a truly wild, full-on committed take to it. Now, while this is clearly Christina Applegate's movie, Sue Ellen Crandall is the lead and she is fabulous in the movie, the success of this film rests truly on the heroic comedic performances of her two co-stars, Joanna Cassidy as her boss, Rose, and Keith Coogan as her brother, Kenny, a.k.a. Kenneth, after his evolution from stoner bro to top chef extraordinaire. Now, I had the sincere privilege to sit down with both of them. Speaking of committed, not only did they commit to their parts, they committed to get me on Zoom for hours, letting me go through their full filmography. We talked about their experiences making Adventures in Babysitting, Blade Runner, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but today, June 7th, we're keeping this all exclusively Don't Tell Mom. And who better to join me as we get into this discussion than my BFF, Bridget Carol Brennan. Yes, this is my bestie I met freshman year at NYU. We were both two little, well, <laughs> can we not say little on my part? I'm someone who gained the freshman 50 while Bridget is somehow maintaining her high school body having just given birth to her second baby weeks ago. Bridget has been bringing such joy into my life since we met at NYU freshman year in the film program. But it really bloomed sophomore year when we were randomly selected to live on the same dorm floor at Water Street. Taking a tour of her room, I spied two tickets to an upcoming movie called American Beauty. As Bridget would have you believe, she says, I invited myself, basically snatched the ticket and said, when are we going? I remember her inviting me, but the truth is probably somewhere in between. Either way, we found ourselves on that line for American Beauty, starring He Who Shall Not Be Named long before the movie was canceled. I remember talking about my high school girlfriend and wondering why Bridget looked so confused when I mentioned her. (laughs) We'd figure that out soon enough. Well, on that note, let's bring out our first guest, Bridget. We're going to break down the movie, play some Don't Tell Mom games, a little backstory, teeing up our conversation with the star of the film herself, Joanna Cassidy. All right, Bridget, or as I call her, Brie, let's rock and roll! Sorry, that was my attempt of doing Kenny from the movie. Apologies, won't happen again. Hello, Bridget. Hi. Well, Uh, I I really should give you a better and bigger intro. Beyond just best friend of mine, this is a film lover, film connoisseur, a writer and producer in her own right, and I'm just blessed to have you here. Well, thank you for that wonderful intro but also for having me on your first episode i'm so excited and excited that it is uh, delving into a true 
movie classic. So I'm honored well, to be here. It was an obvious choice. I mean, we have been talking films for well over 20 years, so who better to have me on this journey as we launch into um, the esteemed grounds of Don't Tell Mom? Bridget, just to give you a tiny bit of backstory, just had a baby weeks ago and is being so precious with her time as I'm trying to give birth to my podcast baby. Having the baby has been my first opportunity to actually like, sit and just... Um watch a bunch of movies and shows that I haven't in ages. And um, so it's perfect timing. I got to dive into this classic. And this is a movie I know we have both watched a million times, but it is funny watching it through the lens now of a 40-year-old, which is facts are facts. I'm not going to hide behind my very strategic cover art, but we are 40. And when we were 10 years old when this movie came out. So I want to take us back there. Do you remember the who, what, where? Do you remember seeing it in theaters? Was it a VHS moment? Did you see it with friends? Take me into your first time. Okay, I will take you back. Uh, spoiler alert, I was not 10 when I saw this movie because I did not see this movie in the theaters, but I don't think it did that well at the box office or wasn't well received. And I know I was only 10, but maybe I was kind of a snob because I was like, I don't want to see that movie. It looks terrible. <laughs> I really didn't like Married with Children and Christina Applegate at that time, I think, was known for playing Kelly Bundy and Married yes. with Children. So <laughs> I that may have been part of my aversion to it. Um, I'm not really sure. Or maybe it was just the critical consensus because I think I was starting to become a little bit of a snob. Maybe. But the first time I saw it was actually probably in like 94 or 95 maybe and I was at a sleepover at a friend's house and she had it on VHS and was like you've never seen this movie oh my god we have to watch it um, so we watched it but the most memorable part of it for me was the fact that um, we were at her dad's house her parents were divorced and her dad had a, uh, a quote friend over and was having a sleepover Ooh, special so friend kept getting into a special friend and the movie kept getting interrupted by um just basically the really loud sounds of, of her dad and his like really young trashy girlfriend having sex and him slapping her ass and we were dying listening at the door. So <laughs> that was literally the first time I saw this movie, but it became one of those that we watched all the time and then started quoting all the time. And I was like, why hadn't I seen this before? So that uh, it became part of my like teenage lexicon the quotes of this movie along with others like empire records and dumb and dumber and you know great ones so there you go well that's a memorable first time i mean you were hearing basically rose taking guts to santa barbara in the background if you know what i mean yeah for like a 14 year old kid it was like oh my it was scandalous on all levels a little traumatized a little traumatic but what now, I don't think we've ever talked about your first time watching this movie, so please enlighten me and the rest of the listeners. Well, Ray, I've been dying for you to ask me about my first time. I mean, this is now <laughs> taking me back really to college days. But, um, you know, I did see it in theaters. I was not a discerning, snobbish 10-year-old like yourself who had a nose in the air as she walked by. So I remember seeing it at Oakmont 8 Theaters in Bradenton, Florida. I remember walking out fully on that high of needing to be a part of the movie. You know, like when I left the net and I tried to go home and order pizza <laughs> immediately when I got home because that's what Sandra did. You know, you know the exact feeling. You leave home alone and I'm there with Cran doing my own operation. Ho, ho, ho. How I'm going to, you know, get rid of the babysitter. But this movie, funny enough, came on the heels of Home Alone. Home Alone came out the Christmas of 90 this was june 1991 so it's funny when i looked at the box office for don't tell mom uh, home alone is number 11 30 weeks into its run it's still number 11 oh at the box God. office when this came out i was all in on the vhs rewatch you obviously are cooler than me because you watched it with friends at slumber party i only had one friend then so i just <laughs> i was probably watching that movie alone on repeat in my room just living and dying by the hbo flicker and for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, here is a quick Don't Tell Mom recap. When Mrs. Cranel goes on a summer vacation to Australia, she leaves her five kids, Sue Ellen, Kenny, Zach, Melissa, and Walter, in the care of an elderly but hideous babysitter named Mrs. Sturak. When she passes, the kids load her body in a trunk and deposit her at the front steps of a local funeral home. The kids are ecstatic because they think they have the summer to themselves without any parental supervision, but soon realize they have buried their wad of money in with the babysitter herself. 
17-year-old Suellen, a.k.a. star Christina Applegate, gets a job at Clown Dog, a disgusting fast food place where she meets her love interest, Brian, but soon quits, poses as a 20-something, and fakes a resume to get a job at General Peril West, where she works as the executive administrative assistant to Rose Lindsay. Suellen borrows petty cash money to survive during the summer, but with the company set to go under, Suellen must use her teen fashion sense to save the company and her job before her mom gets back from Australia. And I have to admit, watching this through, fresh as a 40-year-old, I thought the movie completely holds up as a fantasy come to life. We have dated costumes, we have the dated technologies, but Christina Applegate's performance, Brie, I don't know about you, it really holds up as like a solid, all-in committed take. What do you think? A hundred percent. And that's, you know, especially watching it again, in the middle of the night last night, admittedly, while I was uh, feeding the baby. That was something that struck me, but why I always loved about it was that she, her performance sells the movie. Like she's believable as this kid, but then is able to be this, uh, you know, in the movie to sell herself as this, you know, executive assistant um, so well. And I think it was probably crucial for her to break out of the Kelly Bundy mold, not to get too analytical here, where she's playing this like super ditzy bimbo on Married with Children. But now, now she's like this like fully formed, not overly sexualized teenager, which I think was fantastic. And just goes to show like what a great actress she is, and how she's able to, you know, was able to continue her career. And, you know, if anyone's seen Dead to Me, just continue to keep it like being amazing so swell is our lead character played by christina applegate short for swellen and it's also an iconic name there's only one swell in the history of cinema that i know of um well even sue ellen i mean that that name <laughs> itself even for the 90s feels like kind of archaic so dated. So it's, it's an interesting name choice for sure okay speaking of archaic brie we need to dive into the opening scene okay so we have our credits rolling the mom is leaving town like right from the jump they don't they don't draw it out the mom is leaving as credits are rolling and brie i don't know if you remember this but her opening line is i've had a rough 37 years and i could use a break a rough right. 37 years your mom is younger than us when this movie starts I, and i'm sorry about, she looks like my elf she looks like a parent to me i died last night because i don't ever remember that opening line i was like is she talking about um just like a brief period in her life or <laughs> is that the entirety of her life because uh, if she's 37 then like I'm 27 because... No, we're 16. I'm prepubescent if she's 37. Uh, I've had a rough 37 years. I'm like, girl, you look like you had a hard 49 years. And not to age shame and not to face shame. I'm just saying... You know, whatever age she is claiming to be, I mean, she looks like an age-appropriate mom to have, like, a 17-year-old daughter, to have, um, were there five kids, four kids? But can we also talk about the fact that she's going on some, like, month-long holiday to Australia that her boyfriend's paying for? They just kind of, like, gloss over that. Um, I, I'd be interested in seeing the alternate movie where it's like the mom's perspective and her vacation. I'm with you. What is the mom thinking? Why is the babysitter always crocheting a massive doily for the couch? Like, how big is this doily that's keeping her at the yarn store? The tension of like, is Mrs. Sturak coming back from the yarn store? I was kind of curious about her, if, what her filmography is, if she had well, been in anything I don't want to break any lady. bad news to you, but she's not with us anymore. I mean, it has been 30 years, and she was early 90s when they filmed that part. Really? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have no idea. I'm just saying, I, I assume early, uh, at least early 70s. I know this is a tangent, but I just can't stop thinking about, like, what is this mom's life? And what is her job that she gets to go away for a month to Australia? And what is the outfit she's wearing to get on the plane? That because... pink power suit, right? She's in a pink, yeah. sort of like power suit top. Hair is all Super flipped. 80s. She presents herself as this power boss in a pink power suit at the top yeah. of the movie with clearly D on the brain because she's not thinking about these kids. She's trying to get that long distance no. D and these kids are left to defend for themselves. They set so much up in this movie at lightning speed. Like the first 10 minutes is really mental how much they inundate you, but... That's what I love about the movie. It's like a 90-minute mess. But yeah. not a lot of these movies even has one character with an arc. And I think this does a great job of, in expedited time, like giving you that journey in spite of its like ridiculousness. 
No, totally. And I think what I always was attracted to, I think, or felt so satisfying, like we're talking about these arcs, um, is Sue Ellen and this whole kind of double life she's leading and the tension there. And is she going to get caught? Is she not? And the petty cash. And oh, my gosh, she's in trouble. And Kenny. And like, is he going to make a perfect waffle? Like all these things. Um, but we're forgetting this like central concept of the fact that this babysitter died and all these kids like dumped her dead body just like at a funeral home. Like, didn't call the police and i know they kind of like talk it away but there's something like super macabre about that, oh that it's a dateline it's all tone this is like, a the yeah. worst dateline episode you've ever heard of if they had the right music and he was like the family thought they'd get away <laughs> you know with the white voiceover this is the most horrific like making a murderer part two you it, know it's it is and it's hard like sometimes it's hard to separate that fact from the rest of the movie which is just like summer fun and like great fun soundtrack and then oh my god there's just like dead body that these people dealt with and maybe i've just been watching too much ozark right now and <laughs> there's been a lot of like disposing of dead bodies so maybe i'm super jaded. this is the drama of it all the kids actually are excited for a uh, a summer without parental supervision until they realize they have dropped the babysitter off along with all of their cash so someone needs to get a job which leads me to another classic scene rose Lindsay swooping in like she swoops in and it's like an absolute tornado of shtick charm like what is it it's like two glasses of like white wine in and just this you know naivete and ridiculous amount of trust that she has in sue ellen and her fake resume like right off the bat and i just live for the montage where she's walking her through her like day in the life there's your lotus your modem your gold star there's your portfolio where you can have your petty cash and the whole like fabulousness of the corporate office life going from the 80s into the 90s everyone's smoking you know teaching everyone the new fax technology so yeah i had such anxiety of rose walking swell through all the things she had to do because honestly it really was like what the fuck are you talking about i had no, i had no idea she says something like oh just get the reports and coordinate them like what does that mean to coordinate <laughs> reports like coordinate with who like how and she's like you find it on the c drive like find what like <laughs> and, and the q and the qed report like oh here's the qed report like well what do you do with the report and like so that's the whole thing. I'm, I'm very curious. Like, what is this job? What is she doing with these reports? And, and why is the petty cash so accessible? All that petty cash so accessible. I mean, when you need a bodacious sculpture of ice, it is very helpful to have your petty cash. But we have to talk about Gus, too. I was almost going to play a game with you called, like, would this get canceled? Gus is like an origin story of, like, the Me Too movement. Like, the classic creep that Swellen has to, like, take matters into her own hands and point a gun to his crotch. Albeit this is a water gun filled with Clorox at the end of the movie. But still, like, it really is kind of prescient with taking on the, taking on the man, taking on this Me Too creep. It definitely struck me, like, how, how kind of, yeah, progressive this was for the time. And you have Christine Applegate, who was coming off of, or was in Married to Children at the time as this total bimbo. And now she's in this movie as this teenage girl who is really confident and she's smart. She's assertive. Um not overly sexualized really which is great but going back to gus you know he's super predatory super creepy he's just such a caricature but swan has no issue standing up to him at the end when he's like but you're the one i want to listen to beautiful music with and she's like rose those flowers were for me and then he cut to rose's face the big eyes you know like joanna yeah. cassie has a lot he's of big like, eyes <laughs> that's my favorite are you gonna believe me or are you gonna believe some kid I'm going to believe some, some kid. kid. The movie is Christina Applegates because she's the heart of the movie. But I'm sorry, the comedy, the sheer like force of the movie comes from the character of Rose Lindsay. She is so great. And she she's fantastic. And her one-liners are amazing and so quotable. Sue Ellen, everyone, every girl over 25 has to have a cucumber in the house or do something, whatever it is. <laughs> right. Again, those lines that like for kids go over the head. Right. And Brie, when I was a kid, older. the cucumber line, I thought, well, and maybe I still don't know. I always think the cucumber, obviously she's referring to, you put the cucumber slices on your eyes to look younger. I think it's what she's referring to. But then I always think of it as like, that's your like go-to like DIY dildo. Right? Like, yeah, you, I think there's absolutely dildo innuendo there for sure. Right, it's like, like the, the cucumbers being smuggled in swells, you know. Yes. Well. 
No, a hundred percent. That's I feel like that's what she's alluding to. Uh, and then when the end, you know, when they have their send off. First, we'll talk about outfits, Brie. I've always wanted you on Halloween to dress up as Rose Lindsay in her finale look, uh, and that blunt red bob, right, with the cigarette. Like that ends look is everything. <laughs> it's so good, and the movie I know is technically the '90s, but it definitely is so, you know. It, it kind of has still traces of like the 80s vibe, but the outfits are amazing. Just like yeah, the shoulder pads and the corporate, you know, Rose's outfits, which are so over the top, kind of like she is, like you're talking about her giant personality. And then Sue Ellen, her like day to night look, or I should say teenage to adult look, because she's got her like hip teenager vibe. Right. No, Brie, I'm really glad you mentioned that because the fashions in this movie are dated, but so wrong they're right, so out they're in. I mean, a lot of these looks now, I feel like Sue Ellen could absolutely be walking up and down Melrose around the corner for me and be uh, a fashion plate, right? Like, it's all her, these looks in are... In her teenage looks, right? Like, in her teenage the, looks. No, in her yeah, teenage looks. The outfit looks are a little much. But yeah, the outfit that she's wearing when she's on a date with Brian and they're in the toy store and she's just kind of like olive green, big, um, like... They're not really Palazzo pants. Yeah. Like big pants. It's when they're like, bouncing like, on the balls at the Toys R Us. bodysuit and like the long hair. I'm like, she's rocking that. I just think there's so many looks that this movie, there's so many looks that the Gen Zers could steal from. Okay, game time. Now, Bridget, you are actually one of the most honest people I know. And because you have such morals, I decided we can play a game called Two Truths and One Lie. I've never known you to tell a lie beyond, does this make me look fat? But in this case, I need you to tell me the lie. I'm going to give you two truths and one lie. You call out which is the fib. Fact number one, Jennifer Love Hewitt was originally cast as the daughter Melissa in the movie, but had to back out as the Disney Channel would not release her from a TV show she starred in. Fact number two, Fox had originally envisioned an actor like Winona Ryder in the starring role, but had to move on due to availability. And number three, a young Leonardo DiCaprio was considered for the part of Zach, but was unavailable due to a scheduling conflict. Let's see. If I had to pick a lie, I would say three. I do not think they were considering Leonardo DiCaprio for that role of Zach, just because I think the role is too small. And he was already, I don't know, probably starting to do other things at that point. Well, Bridget, I cannot stump you. You are unflappable and you are a lie detector. You have detected the lie, but at the same point I looked it up, Leonardo DiCaprio in 1991, he was filming Growing Pains, but he wasn't a name by any means. 1991, Bray, he played a small part in Critters 3. In 1992, he played a part in the movie Poison Ivy, credited as Guy. See what I mean? Also, fun fact, in 1991, he was on Roseanne playing Darlene's classmate. One episode. Mm. So, I'm just saying, when Don't Tell Mom was in theaters, he was playing Darlene's classmate with no Look, name. It, it could be... You know, you knew the truth. Now I'm going to try to stump you. Okay. We're going to guess the tomato meter, Okay. Now, oh, I okay. do believe in Rotten Tomatoes. I know most people are like, I ain't judge movies on my own. I don't. If the movie has 90% no. good reviews, I'm going to go see it because yeah. in my mind it has good reviews. If the movie is 8%, the movie's shit. I'm sorry. It's like there could be an anomaly, but I do believe in Rotten Tomatoes. I'm going to ask you to guess the Rotten Tomato meter. Now, some of my guests, well, that's a lie. You're my first guest. But in theory, some of my guests need help with this one and I need to give them hints. But for you, I feel like your first guess could really take the cake. So, no, I kind of just want to guess to you can see do this. where I uh, land, as a, I, I also am a believer in Rotten Tomatoes. Um, yeah, I don't want multiple choice. I'm going to put this solidly at like a 36%. Good. 36% fresh, meaning it's Bridget, rotten. you're cheating, right? No, I'm not. I promise. I no, be God, honest. Is Rotten Tomatoes I, up I on your screen? God. No, I'm being I serious not, now. I, I am I am a hundred I swear the Rotten Tomato I, meter is thirty-six percent. No, no, no Brie, no, Brie, I, I, I swear I didn't look it up beforehand. I promise you. No, Brie, I, I did swear look to you, I'm telling you the truth. The rotten tomato meter is thirty-six <laughs> percent. No way! I oh swear! You guys, I'm looking at Bridget. I, she has a stun. I just said she's the most trustworthy friend I know. So I 
Do you believe her? Because I don't think... Also, if you were going to guess, oh, if you knew and you were going to make up a lie, you would say like 39%. You wouldn't say 36%. Yeah, I need you to do your own fact check on this one. Because I swear, I wrote down 36% when I did my... It, it, yeah. It says 36% run through but I swear I didn't look this up. <laughs> okay, so first, okay. Things, maybe it got better reviews, but... Now, I want to just call out a couple of these reviews. So Peter Travers of Rolling Stone states, Blame the smash of Home Alone for the new herd of Kids on the Loose movies. Let's hope none are dumber than this one. There's no telling how the unflatteringly photographed Applegate delivers a comic line on the big screen because screenwriters haven't given her any. Concluded by calling the movie the film equivalent of processed cheese. Well, you know what? Oh Consider God. this the block of unexpected cheddar from Trader Joe's because I'm gobbling this cheese up in one sitting. Uh, it is cheese, but I'm sorry. This is like the best goat cheese with honey log that I am scraping every last bit. And sorry, I just went to Trader Joe's, so these metaphors are fresh in my head. But I thought two things I wanted to get your take on. One, unflatteringly photographed Applegate. I think that's um, somebody thinks peter travers expecting her to be like sexy kelly bundy isn't that what that means is that low-key like, shade of just saying it's not unflattering yeah. it's just he wants her in a push-up bra is yeah, that yeah. i mean maybe it's unflattering with some of the like work ensembles or something but not unflattering she's just oh god that that really bothers me and that comment did not <laughs> age well thanks rolling stone Ooh. sorry peter Another review I want to point out, Kathleen Marr of the Austin Chronicle described the movie as Home Alone meets Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure meets Working Girl, which I actually I thought was really yes. a smart tip because, Bree, the Working Girl component is something that wasn't so obvious to me, but that is really another story of this undervalued, underappreciated blonde woman who puts on her power suits. I just love that Working Girl tip because I think there is something to that, like the wish fulfillment of walking in these big girl shoes and being the boss you know there's no dim sum cart but uh i i love that that take on it i'm surprised and a little embarrassed that you know you and i didn't pick up on that earlier it's exactly working girl yes. it's like the same plot that's funny oh my god besides for let the river run pulled up rotten tomatoes to make sure that um one i just pulled up now because i didn't cheat and you should note the audience score was 57%, so higher than the okay. uh, critic score. All right, now we have another game for you. No cheating on this one, Bree. No, no Googling oh God, Okay. Okay, so now we're going to play the Desert Island game. This movie is a classic. It's clearly important enough to talk about it for an hour, but is the movie worthy enough to make it to your Desert Island? Now, this is June 7th to June 9th, 30 years ago. I'm going to read the top 10 movies that were in theaters. From that list... Wow. You get to pick three movies, and you need to rank the three. We got some doozies here. So opening at number one that weekend, City Slickers, $13 million. So that was number one. But, number we should know, but you should know City Slickers also has another classic animated. Animated opening! Yes! So, Brie, yeah. That was something I, I wanted to talk about. I last night. Yes, animated openings. One was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That must have been maybe 1989. Was that the year before? It also, Troop Beverly Hills, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. These all have yeah. those animated openings. I swear these were all within the same two years, I want to yes. believe, right? 1991. Yeah, right. it was a very specific moment in time. Sorry. No, right. This is peak animated opening. And honestly, those animated openings always gave me the creeps a little bit. You know what I mean? Like they always yes. felt a little like disturbing. I didn't like them. Yeah. I'm really glad this fad died in the early 90s. Okay, Desert Island. You're picking three movies. Here are your choices. City Slickers, number one. Number two at the box office, Backdraft, six million. Number three, Jungle Fever, five million. Number four, What About Bob, four million. Number five, Soap Dish. Now, Soap Dish is another one, you guys. That's number five at the box office. Coming in number six in its first weekend was Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, earning four million. Number six, move over Rose and Sue Ellen. We've got Thelma and Louise at number six with three million. Number seven, Only the Lonely at <laughs> two million. John Candy. What number is okay. nine, Hudson Hawk. That was like a Bruce Willis Oof, action yeah. flick, I think. Yep. And number 10 was another cult classic, which I never took to, even though I had a best friend that was imaginary. Her name was Kippy. But this imaginary Fred is oh. Drop Dead Fred at number 10. 
Yeah. Were you a Drop Dead Fred girl? No, I wasn't. I remember, <laughs> so it's funny because I didn't see Don't Tell Mom in the theater, but I saw a lot of those other ones in the theaters, including Drop Dead Fred, which, uh, like the animated openings that we were just talking about, like definitely turned me off. There was something that was just so gross and I hated turned it. Off. Like, it's really, yeah, so, there was something so off about that. So definitely that would not be on my list. I'm in the Desert Island movie is one you need to hold on to just as a life preserver. And you want to hold on to a movie that gives you comfort. I want you to rank I mean, from three to one your Desert Island pick. It's really tough. Yeah, definitely not Jungle Fever. I haven't seen it in a long time. I do remember it being like a, a good film, a good Spike Lee joint. Um, but I, I, it's actually probably worth a rewatch. But I don't think that's a desert. Island. Right. Oh, for sure. It's probably the best heavy. of the films, like critically on there. But I just right. I had to yeah, clarify. We're not asking for the Criterion collection. We're asking your no. Desert Island comforts. So, but critically, I definitely put Thelma and Louise up there too. So oh, that would sure. be. I mean, even well, that's heavy too. So I don't know if it's a Desert Island rewatch. It's tough ride. But I think I mean that's a good one. Um, the ending yeah, is yeah, the ending's was... a little. Should we spoil it? Oh. Okay, <laughs> it's been 30 years. Yeah, if you don't know the ending of Thelma and Louise, ending. turn this yeah, off no. now. Okay. All right, so I think my top three... Oh my gosh, this is really hard. I would say... Yeah, I'm not a What About Bob fan, so I wow. know that's, that's a, sacrilegious to a lot of That's a hot folks. take, um, right, because, yeah. you know, hot take. I don't know, I just never got on that train. Baby um, steps. I would have to say City Slickers, because I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed... That was another one, probably, I saw multiple times in theaters when I was 10, that... Uh, Probably Thumb and Louise and Don't Tell Mom. Now you did your top three, but what's what's your what's your one? Like if you have to take I, one, I would probably take. I'd probably take Don't Tell Mom. Woo! Okay, gonna, there I, we go. We've got to win, and I agree. We've been talking about it so much. Mine would be City Slicker Soap Dish and Don't Tell Mom for sure. Don't Tell Mom's got to be one. I love City Slickers, but. There's something about the camp of it all. It's just, I think I need that on the island. Although, God bless um, Jack Palance. You know, no one has won an Oscar from Delta Mom doing a one-arm push-up. There was a rumor that when Jack Palance handed Marissa Tomei her award for Best Supporting Actress for My Cousin Vinny, that he read the wrong name. Marissa Tomei was nominated against four British actresses. It was like Judy Dench, Miranda Richardson... Maggie Smith, none of those really, but that type, like esteemed British actresses. Marissa Tomei won, and the rumor was he just read the name off the card. Very La La Land style. So, Bridget, if you could read a name off a card and give an Oscar out to Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, go rogue. Who is your Oscar winner? Pull a Jack Balance. Well, I think it it's pretty easy, and it would be a supporting actress for Joanna Cassidy. <laughs> Because That's exactly she, my thought, too. 100%. Yeah. I mean, Sue Ellen, Christine Applegate is great, and she is the anchor of the film. Um, but Joanna Cassie elevates it to another level, and her performance is so memorable and so quotable. So there you go. There's my Oscar. Well, I'm handing an Oscar right back to you, Brie. You have elevated this podcast and earned your Best Supporting Podcast Hostess Award. And what a perfect transition to our featured presentation, my interview with the Oscar winner that you just crowned, that I'll definitely double down, Joanna Cassidy, Rose Lindsay herself. Okay, let's do this. Let's get right on top of that, Rose. Now, when I conceived this podcast, I wanted to come up with a pop culture podcast that salutes the powerhouse performances and the firecracker actors that light up our silver screens and now streams. And today I have the epitome of that actress. We have with us Emmy Award nominee, Golden Globe winner, actress, Chanteuse, singer, reptile dancer. We'll get to that. This woman is the queen of all trades. She has been lighting up the screen. Her smile is infectious. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Miss Joanna Cassidy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a beautiful introduction. I am truly a fan of yours. And as I told you before we started recording, you've worked in so many mediums that have touched me throughout my childhood to a young adulthood to currently everywhere I've evolved. Suddenly Joanna Cassidy is in the corner staring back at me and what a vision to stare back. So thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. My pleasure. And I'm still doing it. Clearly you have the love for your work or you wouldn't keep doing this at such a breakneck speed. I just uh, did a show in New York called Younger 
and uh, played a, a real uh, sort of like a Santa Barbara, shall I call her a biatch? <laughs> Amen, please. You know, we can just call her a full on bitch now. We can just lean <laughs> can in, you know. We can do that. Uh, well, that's the beauty of having a podcast with only one listener. You know, there's only one. You know, who are we offending at this point? <laughs> you can be fully loose lipped here. I won't tell anyone. All right. So, uh, girlfriend of Peter Herman, who stars in the show, who's that, that show's been on for seven years. And then a couple months back, I was in New Orleans doing Leverage. And now I'm going to go on back to NCIS New Orleans and play Scott Bakula's mother again. Now, I love that you mentioned that because in my mind, you playing Scott Bakula's mother is akin to Forrest Gump when Sally Field played Tom Hanks' mother. Meanwhile, they were just like five years apart. In my mind, you two seem like peers, like he'd be so lucky to have you as a love interest in a part. That's where you stretch as an actress. Right. Here we go. We'll put on the wig. It's okay. You know, I'll, I'll do that. I'm still going to have a couple facials before I go though, just to, you know, just to get it really clean and make people go, what, 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 who is she? Who is she? Well, <laughs> just because you're a mom doesn't mean you're not hot mom. And, um, Absolutely. Now, I know you mentioned wig. Can we please lead with the most iconic wig I've seen on film in my day, the Rose Lindsay blunt bob of it all? I mean, that is an iconic wig. Do you have any idea where it is now? Like, I wish that's a Simpsonian level piece in my mind. Right up in my closet. Do you have it? I have it. Ah, I wanted to <laughs> surprise you. This is now the 30th anniversary of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. So I wanted to almost surprise you with the Rose Lindsay wig, but I thought maybe our first impression shouldn't me be in full drag, but I, I was one step away from putting on my shoulder pads, my rouge, the blunt bob. I almost wanted to have Rose staring back at you, but um, I, I respected you enough to not to give you a fright this early in the morning. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good look. That was really a good look. And that was very designed by um, the, the makeup artist who was in fact uh, an artist. And she, she did the most beautiful makeup. And then we talked with the hair department about the, the look. And that was when I was a redhead, uh, which I was a natural redhead. Right. Well, I've, I'm natural-ish. Mine's faded. You know, you're Scottish, Irish, am I right? Yep. Well, it's funny. I'm Jewish, Irish, which means I've got a full head of hair, but enormous appetite and major guilt issues. <laughs> uh, so I identify, you know, you know, I'm half Jewish because I've been pushing food on you. I wanted to send you bagels and spreads and locks, you know, that's. I, I know. I love it. I'm, I'm going to take you up on it. Your work, um, I keep wanting to say Miss Cassidy. It's like a Southern thing. I, you know, I grew up in the South. Actually, I was born in Long Island. I grew up in Florida. Now I'm in LA. I'm literally from the Bermuda Triangle of trash, you know? So, uh, but still the Southern manners in me, I keep wanting to call you Miss Cassidy, you know, just respecting the legend you are. And your career is truly littered, not only with cult classics, but true classics that are going to be in the time capsule of film. One part that I don't think you won a trophy for, although I would like to take this moment and honor you. Best <laughs> supporting VP, Rose Lindsay herself. I mean, for Don't Tell Mom, that is the part which I know, I'm sure when you signed up for the script and it was originally titled The Real World, you probably had no idea it would become this Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead juggernaut that it's become over the last three years. And it came and went, it doubled its budget. It was made on a $10 million budget, it yep. made 25 million. Yep. I know that wasn't what you guys were expecting, but seriously, in those last 30 years, Don't Tell Mom has been its own cult. And I'm someone who's been raised on that. I was 10 years old when I walked into Don't Tell Mom. And that's the time where all 10 year olds were obsessed with Home Alone. All the other kids wanted to be Kevin and take on the criminals. and take on their battle. I wanted to be Sue Ellen and get to GWA and meet Rose Lindsay, have a cocktail, have a cigarette, have a kiki, have a, just a laugh. I mean, the spirit that you brought to Don't Tell Mom, I can't begin to extend the lengths because you come in and immediately you need to be this beacon for Christina Applegate's character. Her mom has left her alone for the summer. The babysitter's dead. Sorry for the spoilers, anyone out there, but the babysitter has died <laughs> and there is Rose and she is the embodiment of just full love. She's loving Sue Ellen. She's loving her role. She's loving the fashions. She's just oozing all of that ooh-la-la. -la. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is that what you 
got a sense of that character yourself, Rose, was just such like a lover of life? Yeah, she had to be bigger than life. I mean, I, I had to be bigger than every actor than in that in that film. You know, that was date like David Duchovny's, like one of his first roles. It's Oh my gosh, do I remember? Well, I want to play Mary, Shag, Kill With You. You know, the classic game. You pick one to marry, one to shag, one to kill. I'm going to give you the Don't Tell Mom edition. You brought up David Duchovny, so we have to put him in the mix. Now, he played the flunky who's trying to uncover Swellen's real age. Then we have Josh Charles, famous Josh Charles, who went on to star in The Good Wife. He plays young Brian in his classic clown boy wedge cap. And then we have Gus, your romantic partner on screen. Gus, who's played by actor John Getz, who I think is a legend. He was in Blood Simple with the Coen brothers and Curly Sue and um, The Fly. So if I had to give you those three, Gus, young Brian, played by Josh Charles, and we go in for the third, David Duchovny. Who do you marry? Who do you shag? Who do we kill? Don't tell mom edition. No, I'm talking the characters, you know, so we're 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 not offending the actors here. They'll live long and prosper. Uh, uh, I, I, I shag uh, David Duchovny. Amen. Uh, kill Josh Charles. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> You're gone. Well, that's and, exactly and... what happened to him on The Good Wife. Also, spoiler, sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, marry John Betts. Only for a while. Only to get divorced uh, six months later. Well, we all know <laughs> Gus has that roving eye. Now, I actually want to bring in a special guest now. Now, this is not David Duchovny, no. This is not Harrison Ford. This is Preston Reese, my father. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Super fan. Big P. We've got our special guest. Oh, my God. There is Joanna Cassidy. I am very, very pleased. Hi there. So, Miss Cassidy, this is my dad, Preston. We call him Big P. He's a big <laughs> fan of yours. And we needed to do this. Once I found out you were giving me some of your time, the first call was to my dad because my dad is the one who became absolutely my mentor in movies. And we have watched that movie. I'm not kidding. Over a hundred times. We had the VHS tape that was burned out. Oh, we <laughs> could just, we could just with a nod and a wink, we don't need to quote a line. We would just quote the Rose Lindsay eyes. I mean, you could express everything in that part without one bit of dialogue. That performance could work on the silent screen, but it's truly left an impression. And I wanted to bring in Big P to give us Big P's top five to go through the top five don't tell okay. mom moments right, that has stood P. out. Okay, Big P, <laughs> we haven't rehearsed this. So Joanna, don't come for me if we get off the rails here, but- Dad, we've, okay. Dad, we've got a lady. Okay. We've got a lady in our company. Well, I'll tell you what. It's uh, it's my honor to be here uh, with you this morning. I've been a big fan of yours. You've always been one of my like special ladies, along with Charlize Theron and Leslie Mann, and of course Joan Cusack. Uh, and uh, there's a very uh, unusual special list, but to, to narrow it down to a top five is almost impossible. But just off the top of the cuff, I'd have to say, uh, well, Sue Ellen, have you ever had a 40-hour orgasm? No, I've never been to Santa Barbara. So <laughs> that was one that was uh, was quite funny. I'd also say, um, go home, have a glass of wine, and put some cucumbers on your face. Uh, well, every woman over 25 should have a cucumber in the house. So... <laughs> Dad, not the cucumber. It's too early for the cucumber. Oh, uh, I don't know. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I love the one where it's like, uh, you let Kathy do the QD, QED report? I was wondering how you were going to get that and everything else done. Bravo, Sue Ellen. You are a paragon. <laughs> how did I ever get all those words oh, out? Oh, there was Amazing. a bunch more, but I, I remember that. Um, paragon is also an SAT word. I swear was on my SAT. And... I have to give Joanna credit because that's how I knew the definition. Uh, I didn't. So you gave me an extra credit. You got me into NYU, basically. So well, there there is some truth to that. There certainly is some truth to that. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, I love at the end when you were like, "The bias don't care at all about that scene back there. They're just a bunch of old whores." And you you did that so well uh, at the end of the movie. That was uh, that was outstanding. And I've been. 
watch this movie again. I don't remember those lines. That's oh, something. yeah, she got busted. That's she great. got, you know, busted it. at the house. Her mom came back and and there was a whole scene with her. And and, and uh, you, you just, you played that line off so well. And of course, when you schooled her at the beginning about, um, oh, if I ever get a phone call and ever ask her anything, of course, I'm right on top of that, Rose. And uh, as evidenced here by my morning coffee and uh, right there at my mug is, I'm right on top of that, Rose. And of course- Wait, Dad, hold the wait, hold that closer. That's so great. Where, where did you get uh, that? I made it. That's fabulous. You yes, made, I it? made it? I, I do this wow. kind of stuff. So, uh, but of you course, every morning when I have my morning coffee, there it is, QED report, I'm right on top of that, Rose. Incredible. And show, That's incredible. And Dad, we show the other side, your co-star. Oh, and the other Dan. side is your co-star is Kenny or Kenneth. Oh, Keith. Oh, yes. oh, that's so good. That's really good. On screen. Thank you so much for allowing Thank me to be you. here and uh, best of luck with everything, uh, Joanna. And uh, thanks for joining my son. All right, so you as well. Okay. You take Bye care now. of yourself. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is so funny. You're, you're so, He's adorable. You're so kind to entertain. I saw a couple of women going back and forth. Are, are they, is he like a, a Mormon or something? <laughs> He's by the kitchen. So I think everyone's just like dying for a snack. <laughs> he's on the East Coast, but he's big P, but not big love. Um, but <laughs> good, good like you mentioned, you probably don't know half of the lines that people come up to you quoting because you have gone on to just done such a story career in so many parts, so many scripts. But do you find that Don't Tell Mom stands out amongst your projects as just a pop culture touchstone that people can't help but bring up to you all the time? De most definitely. And and what's what I've always said about parts is that every film that I've almost every, television and film, when I've had young people working with me, everyone goes on. I, I feel like a springboard, or like a trampoline sometimes, you it's know? It's a ride. I mean, it's a ride. Wait. It's a ride. And that's what the part of Rose Lindsay is. When you come in, all the hyperbole, like, have you ever had a 40 hour orgasm? And she's like, no, I've never been to Santa Barbara. The way Christine Applegate okay. plays it so straight and you are truly the live wire. It is a joyous performance. Like everything changing behind the Chinese screen to try to woo Gus, <laughs> you know, just putting your passion in everything from the cocktails to the smoking to even when you get the bad news, you grab the M&Ms and it's a tour de force comic performance. On the M&M scene, did you get to actually pelting her with M&Ms just to kind of keep it alive and keep it fresh? I, I, I kind of did. I, I, I mean, I did anything and everything to make her laugh because I, she was, she was, kind of terrified to do that film. I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a lot for her. She took on a lot and she, she her mother was there a lot on the set. And um, I, I promised her mother that I would take care of her. And uh, yeah, I, I was gobbling so many M&Ms. I was quite <laughs> nauseated after that scene, but I did anything. And I would talk to her with my mouth full of the M&Ms. This sounds like foreplay, gobbling M&Ms. You're nauseated, right. I'm, I might need to <laughs> turn the camera off. It's hot in here. <laughs> Rose is all over the movie. Every other scene yeah. is Rose. And I'm imagining those filmmakers preserved every ounce of celluloid they had Joanna Cassidy on. Do you remember scenes you shot that didn't make the cut or do you think they used everything you gave them? I, I think they used <laughs> everything. I, Actually, I, I, really, I, I think they realized that they had a, a it, you know, in all honesty, I mean, it, it was a gem of, of a performance. It, it was. Is. And just the the energy of it was amazing. Now they're remaking it. Now I I, I don't with, with I don't love these remakes because it's so hard to tackle a classic. My only allowance for this remake is if somehow Rose is at the top of the board, smoking her you know cigar in the boardroom, like right. and she right. has like flipped the script on all the Me Too's and gotten rid of all these men. I just I need a nod to the original if we're gonna remake it. That's just well, I, I, I talked to the producers about it because they want me to come back Ooh. for a cameo. And I said, well, you'll, you'll help me. You'll let me write my part, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, kidding them because, you know, of course, they're not going to let me write my own part. But I said, um, 
and you know, it's diverse. So it's, it's going to be a black movie. I said, well, this will, this will be an interesting, uh, reckoning with with the world today i said but yeah just let me be rose that's the thing because hello they can't do that movie without an eye bulge and a qed <laughs> report now i mean you don't remember the lines but you remember right. the qed report i mean yes i do yes I now do. your famous line the iconic line now i respect you too much to ask you to do a role play on any scene with me but could you give me please the the gift that all gay men like myself are dying to hear. Rose herself, tell me her iconic line. Let me let me get it back. Let me get it back. <laughs> You're gonna make me laugh. I'm right on top of that, Rose. Hallelujah, I can die a happy man. That is a <laughs> catchphrase that has truly stood the test of time. And I want to play a game with you real quick. Okay. Now, in honor of your signature line, I'm right on top of that rose, I want to play a little game called I'm right on top of them rolls. <laughs> I want to give you a couple of your famous co-stars. Now, we all know Rose is Randy to get to Santa Barbara for that 48-hour orgasm. So we know Rose likes a little fun. We like to keep it heated. I mean, she's talking about that cucumber in the house. I'm going to give you two co-stars, <laughs> and you tell me who you think Rose would prefer to go to Santa Barbara with. Okay, we're gonna play the under fire edition. Gene Hackman and Nick Nolte came out 1983, four, 83. And those are just legends, Gene Hackman and Nick Nolte. So who's Rose gonna tango with? Oh, Gene. Gene. Gene Hackman. Yeah, you don't get better than Gene Hackman as the leading man. Yeah, no. And do you have good memories of working with Gene as a professional? I, I absolutely do. I. I loved working with him. He and I had some moments where I've never had another actor say this to me. And, and I know it was rare for Gene to say it too. He said, we did the scene. And afterwards he, he looked at me and he said, did you feel that? And I said, I, I did. I said, tell me what you would think. He said, everyone disappeared. Wow. It was just you and I. Wow. That's all you want, right? A full set, a full crew, just to be truly present in the moment. So with someone and so connected, it all goes away. You're right there in that moment. It was phenomenal. Okay, so Rose is going with Gene. That was that was worth an Academy. Truly, award, I tell you. Okay, now speaking of your Blade Runner boys, Harrison Ford, the original, or Ryan Gosling? Who do we pick? <sighs> Ryan Gosling, because I think that I would love to, more than anything, run towards him and jump up and have him uh, yes. hold me in the ear. <laughs> An iconic <laughs> lift. Oh. The iconic lift and then have me fly over and fall in the bed. Oh my gosh, How's that? action. <laughs> We've got a green light. <laughs> now I'm gonna give you the Six Feet Under, the Fisher Sons edition, Peter Krause or Michael C. Hall. These are two co-stars six feet under, Michael C. Hall. Yeah, he. I know you didn't get a lot of scenes with him because your character was mainly involved with Brenda and Billy, your tragic children, yeah. Billy and Brenda, their stories intersected with Peter Krause, but I love that you said Michael C. Hall. Did he just leave an impression with you from your experience? Right. He's just, he's he's very unique and, and, and unusual and, uh, I, I think he's got a, a, Peter's very sexy. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, he's a, he's a very attractive man and he, and he definitely was then. He's, I think he's another Leo like I am. Oh my gosh. And there was a, definitely a spark, but Michael would be fun to discover. Right. The discovery process. I'm giving you the two heartthrob editions. These are the hunks you've worked with in the past. Jason okay. Priestley or Bob Hoskins. We're talking studs here. You are talking studs, both of them. That's a tough call. Right. Um, hmm. uh, I did. Uh, I did kind of make out with Bob Hoskins. I got it. You got to pick Bob Hoskins. I mean, that's the sex symbol of our day. I mean, Danny DeVito is a close second, but Bob Hoskins. That's my kind of guy. Someone you can cuddle with. Yeah. But we're no. going with Bob Hoskins over Jason Priestley. Yeah, yeah, I think Bob Hoskins, yeah. But J Jason, I mean, listen, he's- I gotta be honest. The biggest thing I'm jealous about on your career, in 2015, Jason Priestley tweeted, and I quote, love your infectious, glorious laugh, Joanna. 
You have Brandon Walsh, Jason Priestley, who was my absolute crush growing up, raving about you, crushing out over you. I love that's clearly on screen and off screen. No, I mean, if I, if I start naming names of people that I've worked with, it's, it's it, kind of extraordinary. That's I'm, yet to come. You're on I fire. Like, no, I, I, I would love to still, cause I've, I've felt that way. And I was in New York and I'm doing that show younger. I just, I was really good. And I'm just going, I'm not done yet. I'm no. not done yet. I'm not Look what you yet. did with this alone. You took a script with Don't Tomorrow the Babysitter's Dead and turned something that really could have came and went and just died in cable. And you honestly elevated that to a cult classic. And before we wrap up, I just want to rally just a couple of my favorites. Carolyn's a receptionist. She's trying to bust Sue Ellen with the QED report. She calls her out and you look at her and you have that fearful eye bulge. And then you bring it down and you were like, I was wondering how are you going to get the QED report done? and the research for the school presentation. What a way to delegate responsibility. You are a paragon. That line reading of going from shock, dismay to joy, and then absolute perfection. I mean, you did a whole character arc in one line. I did. <laughs> I, no, I did. I, and it's very interesting because that director, it's, Funny. I mean, he was he was there, but we we but everyone was sort of learning in that. You know, everyone was kind of learning where where we would all go. It wasn't a you know predetermined. You thing. can tell just, you you came in and led the scene. When you come in, you're like Operation Eggs Florentine was a rousing success with the school board. It's like who can make Eggs Florentine sound sexy? And lastly, I'm going to leave you with this one. This is my favorite. Carolyn comes up to you at the party. If you remember, she tells you and she gives you her license and you look at the Caroline, you give her this dead face line reading and you tell her, this is by far and away the most petty, vicious, spiteful, vindictive machination you have ever concocted. Grow up, Carolyn. And you strut off. You just like silenced her dead. Kind of nailed it. Nailed it. Kind of nailed it, yeah. And then in that spirit, you do the same thing with Gus. You have a great last act. Gus comes up to you and he goes, now are you going to believe me or are you going to believe some kid? And you go, I'm going to believe some kid. Go to hell, Gus. It's like you're in a Western and you're just like walking <laughs> out of town and you own the scene. That's just a testament to you, um, bringing that character to life and just making Rose such an icon. I think I'm going to have to hire you to pull all these things up um, and because I, you know things that I know nothing about. I mean, <laughs> you, I, you clearly are a researcher of, of extraordinary skill. I mean, that's, I, I'm amazed. I'm really quite amazed and impressed, really. Thank you. Well, there you go, kiddos. We made it to the end of episode one of While You Were Streaming. I was so impressed with Joanna Cassidy. We will have a lot more from her down the road as we talk about some of the epic tales from the epic projects she starred in, including Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Blade Runner, and my favorite TV show of all time, Six Feet Under, which is streaming now on HBO Max. If you haven't seen it, get there. Join us for our next episode when the deep dive into Don't Tell Mom's 30th anniversary continues when we talk with star Keith Coogan, our favorite stoner Kenny. Not only will we get his classic Belgian waffle recipe, Keith takes us behind the scenes making Don't Tell Mom, working with Christina Applegate, David Duchovny, and more of Keith's adventures in Hollywood with cameos by Elizabeth Shue, River Phoenix, Christian Slater, and a tale involving Rodney Dangerfield's ball sack that is not for the faint of heart. And if that's not a tease, I don't know what is. Join us next week to cover all the movies you should have watched while you were streaming. Here's a sneak peek of next week's. I never got to um, work on camera with Mrs. Durack because <laughs> Kenny left the house before she showed up. And so I love the joke because we ditched her at the mortuary when we're parked in the car out front <laughs> hoping we don't get busted for hiding a dead body. And she goes on and on. It's not fair or whatever. Are we doing the right thing? And I say, yeah, she was a great babysitter. And I never set eyes on her at all. And I knew that and I'm doing it. And I don't. And with Kenny, he knew that. And he's saying, you know, I never saw her. So, yeah, she's a great babysitter. So that's I just love the um, 
completely way that we i mean you've got melissa saying hack off her head so she'll <laughs> fit in the box zach is like she doesn't smell yet you know like a macgyver um what a demented family and that is leftover remnants from when the movie's draft of the script had all of the kids suspects and the crazy aunt got involved and the police got involved and all of it we didn't know who killed her so they got rid of all of that they introduced the office stuff and it you know, that's you have that great. I call it working girl meets secret of my success. Yes. Oh, meets home alone times five. Perfect combo. Wait, Keith, not only did you not meet Mrs. Sturak, you caused her death when she walks into Kenny's room. Yeah.